Let's pray together. Father, you have told us that we, as your creatures, do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so, God, we come to you this evening as weak and needy creatures, and we ask that you would nourish our souls by your word. We pray that you would help us to receive your word with humility and with gratitude, and that it would be sweet to us, and that it would increase our faith in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a cold Wednesday evening in late 2011. I was at our church's Bible study in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, which started at 7 o'clock in the evening. Emily had to work late that night, and so she got to the Bible study about halfway through. She parked the car at about 7.30 p.m., and then by the time our gathering dismissed at 8 p.m., her car was gone. Someone in the span of 30 minutes had stolen her car right out of the church's parking lot. The police said that because of the incredible efficiency of those thieves, that Emily had probably been followed. It was an unsettling experience. We filed a police report and an insurance claim. Several weeks went by, and we were moving on when the police called to tell us they had found our car. It was abandoned in a parking lot. Several of the, the parts had been taken out of it, and then it had just been left there. So, uh, eventually, we got the car back after the police were done lifting fingerprints and investigating and doing exciting things. And along with paying the insurance deductible of $500, the main cost to us was our sense of security. Again, several weeks went by, and we were moving on with life when we heard that the thieves had been caught. The news article read, Couple accused of car theft faces judge. A couple, a man and a woman, had stolen dozens of cars, and they were taking the parts and selling them to, uh, for drug money. And they were tried and found guilty, and a part of their sentence was to pay restitution to those from whom they had stolen the car. The cars, because they'd stolen dozens. Just a few weeks ago, we received a check in the mail from the Louisville Metro Department of Corrections for $10.57. Another fractional installment in the restitution payment eight years later. The wheels of justice turn slowly. Even though we might chuckle or sigh at this instance of delayed justice, I'm, I'm grateful for the measure of justice that we did experience. 
In the grand scheme of history, and even in our world today, justice is not the norm. Justice is not common. I have missionary friends from college that grew up in another country, and they told me that for them, when they were learning how to drive, they had to be aware that if they got pulled over by the police, that meant that they were going to be faced with either steep penalties or the police officer would push them into a bribe and try to get them to bribe the police officer so that they wouldn't receive steep fines. Even in our own country today, punishments too often appear to apply disproportionately to favor the powerful and wealthy and to take advantage of the weak and vulnerable. Too often we have instances of injustice where people are falsely accused, some of whom are absolved later, but some who are never absolved. Perhaps more commonly, we each know levels of injustice when we have conflict with our neighbors, our friends, or our family members, where there seems that there is no judge and there is no way to get justice. Maybe you've been taken advantage of with no recourse for yourself. Maybe you've been falsely accused, and the more you try to clear your name, the more guilty you appear. Living with injustice can leave us anxious and uneasy. We prize justice highly, but so rarely seem to get it. So what are we to do? Where can we look for justice in an unjust world? Well, Psalm 7 helps us answer that question. So I invite you to turn there to Psalm chapter 7. It's on page 410 if you're using the Bible in the pew. The Psalms are, of course, songs. And the book of Psalms was the songbook of Israel. We're reminded of this in the introductory remarks to this very psalm, that David sang these words to the Lord. And when we think of it that way as a songbook, it's actually a very uh, surprisingly dark start to a songbook. The first several psalms aren't the playlist you would choose for a party or a vacation. And yet this somber tone instructs us, doesn't it? We live in a broken world, and lamenting songs that cry for help and justice are appropriate and worshipful. The book of Psalms begins in Psalm 1, establishing this baseline truth that God will bless the righteous and judge the wicked. Nevertheless, we see in the very next psalm that the wicked rage against God and against his anointed king. And then in Psalms 3 through 6, David pens personal poems of pain, crying out to God for help and justice. And Psalm 7 provides another specific instance where David cried to God for justice. So let's listen to his song and his prayer to God for justice in Psalm 7. A Shigayon of David, which he sang unto the Lord concerning the words of Cush, the Benjamite. O Lord my God, in thee do I put my trust. Save me from all them that persecute me and deliver me. Lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending it in pieces while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there be iniquity in my hands, 
If I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, yea, I have delivered him that without cause is mine enemy. Let the enemy persecute my soul and take it. Yea, let him tread down my life upon the earth and lay mine honor in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in thine anger. Lift up thyself because of the rage of mine enemies. And awake for me to the judgment that thou hast commanded. So shall the congregation of the people compass thee about. For their sakes, therefore, return thou on high. The Lord shall judge the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to mine integrity that is in me. O let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God trieth the hearts and reins. My defense is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will wet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordaineth his arrows against the persecutors. Behold, he travaileth with iniquity and hath conceived mischief and brought forth falsehood. He made a pit and digged it and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His mischief shall return upon his own head and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own pate. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. The main question that we are asking this psalm as we listen in on David's song here is where can we find justice in an unjust world? Where can we find justice in an unjust world? We'll outline our study by breaking down the larger song into smaller songs. You may notice that in our morning service each week, each song has a theme. So this morning, for instance, we sang a hymn of praise and a hymn of longing, a a hymn of pardon and security and endurance. We do this to show a flow and trajectory in the service. So similarly, we'll track the flow of this psalm with some thematic songs. First, we'll see the song of injustice, and then the song for justice, and then a concluding song of praise. So a song of injustice, then a song for justice, and then a song of praise. First, we have a song of injustice in the first five verses. In sum, the injustice is that David's enemies want to destroy him, even though he is innocent. It's clear that David's enemies want to bring him to ruin in the first two verses. David calls out to God for help. He says, he says, lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending it in pieces. This is a gruesome picture of David's danger. Our son, Jack, loves animals. He hasn't met an animal yet that he doesn't want to go up and pet. Just last week, we were visiting family, and Jack was introducing himself to one of the house cats. This particular cat wasn't interested. So he hissed and spat at Jack and either bit or clawed him on the arm. We we weren't quite sure. There were some small marks. He was, in the long run, fine, but he was devastated in the moment that the cat didn't want his attention. 
Just imagine the ferocity of a lion. And this lion doesn't just want to be left alone. This lion, David says, is pursuing him. It wants his soul to rend his soul into pieces. We don't know much about the particulars of this enemy. In the introduction, we're told that this song is a response to the words of Cush. Now, there's no record of this particular character elsewhere in Scripture, so we can't be sure what he said. We can work backwards from verse 4 to guess that Cush had accused David of some wrongdoing. Maybe Cush had accused David of, of doing something wrong to someone, of bringing harm to someone. Other than that, we're simply told that Cush was a Benjamite. And that, that's another clue for us because David has a long, difficult history with the tribe of Benjamin. David, of course, is of the tribe of Judah, and Saul was his great enemy from the tribe of Benjamin. And then throughout David's life, Shimei was a Benjamite who cursed David in 2 Samuel chapter 16. And then another Benjamite named Sheba stirred up a revolt against David in 2 Samuel 20. So David does not have a, a good history with this tribe. And Cush is just another one of those characters who's giving David a hard time. But despite this harsh attack, David is innocent. The accusations are false. And David is so confident of his innocence that he asks God to examine his own heart on the matter in verses 3 through 5. He says, in essence, if I have done these things, then let my enemy catch me. And then in verses 8 and 10, David makes his innocence, his integrity, one of the foundations of his prayer for justice to God. He says in verse 8, judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. Now, this might make us a bit uncomfortable because we know who David is, don't we? We know David's words in other Psalms, like Psalms 14 and Psalms 32 and Psalm 51, where David confesses freely that he is a guilty sinner, that he is not righteous, that no one is righteous, and that he needs forgiveness for his sins. So how are we to make sense of David now coming to God, pleading his righteousness as the basis of his prayer? Well, I think the simplest way to understand this is that David is speaking of his righteousness in reference to these particular charges that are being brought against him. David here isn't claiming to be sinless or to be perfectly righteous, but he is claiming to be innocent of these charges and to be right on this point. Just because we aren't perfectly righteous doesn't mean that we can't do something right. Friend, have you been falsely accused? Have you been blamed for something that's not your fault? If so, God offers you the blessing of a clear conscience. That's what David has here. And the blessing is that we have a God who knows the truth. He knows what happened. And we have a God who cares about justice and who will do what is right. 
He's not indifferent. And so that is David's hope and confidence in his prayer. So praise God that doing the right thing and having a clear conscience matters because God knows and God is just. Maybe you hear this psalm and and you can't relate to David's sense of danger. You may feel rather safe this evening. But brothers and sisters, we need to have the eyes of Scripture and see and understand that each of us have a personal enemy, an accuser, a lion who stalks us to tear our soul to shreds. And that is Satan. Are you on your guard against his attacks? Are you aware that he's after you? Are you familiar with his methods? Friend, he will not play fair. He trades in injustice. He will not be obvious, but subtle and deceptive. And he will not be honest, but loves to have us believe a lie. Have you felt his pursuit this week? I have. Beloved, we have a shepherd who will guard us from him. David says in verse 10, My defense is of God. So be on guard, be watchful, and go to God for protection. Pray and ask God to deliver you from the evil one. Jesus taught us to pray like that, and we should. This song of injustice turns into the song for justice in verses 6 through 16. In verses 6 and 7, David requests for God to judge. In these verses, David paints a picture where he sees the judgment seat to be vacant. He asks the Lord to arise, to lift himself up. He asks that the Lord would awake from slumber and return to his judgment seat. There are times, brothers and sisters, in an unjust world where God seems to our eyes to be distant. And his judgment throne seems to be vacant. And David expresses that feeling here. But then David speaks in faith in verses 8 through 11, where God arrives to judge. In these verses, verses 8 through 11, David affirms what we expect from Psalm Psalm 1, that the Lord will judge the wicked and blow them away like chaff. God is a shield for his people and a righteous judge who rightly executes his wrath against evil. For David and for God's people today, this affirmation of God's righteous judgment takes faith. Because you see, David sang these words before he actually saw God's justice. But he had faith 
that God would act and that justice would come. This is how Jesus faced injustice. We heard this earlier in the service from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. Jesus faced injustice by entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Brothers and sisters, it is so easy, isn't it, to return evil for evil. If you play sports, or if you watch sports, you see this all the time, don't you? If someone hits you, you hit them back. You take justice in your own hands and you retaliate. Maybe this happens because you think the ref didn't see the penalty, or because you think that the punishment of 15 yards and a first down isn't enough and that it wouldn't satisfy you, or you feel that justice would be better coming from your hands. What is true in sports is true in life. It is so easy when someone shouts at us in anger to shout right back. It is so easy when someone is unkind to you that you return the unkindness. When someone has been thoughtless toward you, it's easy to forget about them. But having faith in God's justice is how we can return evil with good. When we trust that vengeance is the Lord's, then we can love our enemy. This is how we can be like Christ, who amazingly, when you read the story of the crucifixion again and again, is loving his enemies. He's praying for his enemies on the cross, asking that the Father would forgive them. He's thinking of others, caring for his family while he's dying on the cross. He's pushing Pilate and others to think about truth and to think about their own eternity. Spurgeon said, Evil for good is devil-like. Evil for evil is beast-like. Good for good is man-like. Good for evil is God-like. That is how God has responded to us. So, friend, if you struggle with loving your enemy and returning evil with good, then trust in God that he is just and that he will do justice. Boys and girls, this is true for you too. Do you get upset when your brother or sister or your friend does something wrong to you? Do you want to get them back? It's so easy to feel that way, isn't it? So boys and girls, trust that God knows, and God will take care of the wrong thing. That is how you can be kind even when someone is mean to you. God hasn't missed the call. He knows what happened. Verse 9 says, God trieth the hearts and reins. The word for reins here is a very fascinating word. It's the word for kidneys. We don't use that the word that way. Uh, but it's a reference to our deepest feelings. This means that God knows and tests all of our thoughts and feelings. He isn't turning a blind eye to the wrongs done to you. His justice will be rightly measured in a way that ours never could be. And justice will be satisfying when it comes from God in a way that it never could be if it came from you. 
So friend, trust in God's justice. It will surely come. And then David sees that it does come in verses 12 through 16. God took his throne, and then he executes judgment in verses 12 through 16. This song of justice moves from a request for God to take his judgment seat to God taking that seat and then executing judgment. And how fierce that judgment is when it comes. Look at these verses. David describes it as a sharp sword, as a bent bow. The tools of justice are ready and will utterly destroy the wicked. God's judgment isn't a mere setback or a reset. It will be the end and the undoing of evildoers. We think too little and too lightly of the severity of God's judgment. And David helps us to be clear-eyed about our sin by using this terrifying imagery so that we will rightly fear God's judgment. David also shows us the progression of sin in verse 14. Sin won't stay small. It grows and matures just like a baby being born. James talks like this in James chapter 1, verse 15, where he says, then When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished or mature, bringeth forth death. Sin is not safe. It won't stay small. It grows, and it only brings destruction. And sin doesn't just harm others. Sin, David says here, is self destructive. Notice how he describes the wicked in verse 15. They dig a pit, and then they themselves fall into it. And verse 16 makes clear that our sins come at a great cost to ourselves. When it says there at the end of verse 16 that violence comes down on our own pate, that means that violence comes back on our own head. It's so important to be clear about this, because sin seems good to us in the moment, doesn't it? Children, again, this is very important for us to understand, because we, we want to steal something, don't we? Because we think that we would be happier if we had that thing that's not ours. And then when our parents ask us if we stole it, we think that we'd be safer if we lied. But sin tricks us into thinking that disobeying God is better than obeying him. Sin will only ever hurt us. And even though it might feel good and it might feel safe, it won't last. And God judges sin. Charles Spurgeon, again, he describes the danger of sin so powerfully, saying, The best day that ever dawns on a sinner brings a curse with it. Sinners may have many feast days, but not safe days. From the beginning of the year, even to its ending, there is not an hour in which God's oven is not hot and burning in readiness for the wicked, who shall be as stubble. God's sword has been sharpening upon the revolving stone of our daily wickedness, and if we will not repent, it will speedily cut us in pieces. Turn or burn is the sinner's only alternative. That is sobering. This psalm 
is sobering. God's judgment is serious. But there is a way of escape. Did you notice it there at the beginning of verse 12? David says, if he turn not. God offers us escape if we turn from our sins and trust Christ. Have you read John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress? I hope you have. There's so many good versions you can get. It's free online because it was written a long, long time ago. It's public domain. There's a new animated movie that is good that I have a copy of it. You can borrow it from me. BVI has an abridged edition that we use with our kids. It's very good. That story begins with Christian reading the Bible and hearing of the penalty of sin and judgment. And he is weighed down by the burden that is on his back, that burden of guilt and shame from his sin. Bunyan writes that he saw Christian walking in the fields, reading in his book, and greatly distressed in his mind. And as he read, he burst out as he had done before, crying, What shall I do to be saved? I saw also that he looked this way and that way as if he would run. Yet he stood still because, as I perceived, he could not tell which way to go. He goes on, I looked then and saw a man named Evangelist come to him and ask, Wherefore dost thou cry? Why are you crying? He answered, Sir, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die, and after that to come to judgment. And I find that I'm not willing to do the first, die, nor able to do the second, face judgment. Then Evangelist said, If this be thy condition, why standest thou still? He answered, Because I know not where to go. Then he, Evangelist, gave him a parchment roll, and there was written within, Fly from the wrath to come. The man therefore read it and looked upon Evangelist very carefully. He said, Whither must I fly? Evangelist then points him to the wicket gate through which he will find life, eternal life, through the cross of Jesus Christ. And then Christian goes. He runs, crying out, Life, everlasting life. Friend, if you feel this weight of sin, if you see the judgment that you deserve, don't stand still. Fly to Christ. Jesus took the arrows of God's wrath in the place of sinners on the cross. The sharp sword of God's justice fell on him. As we've been hearing on Communion Sundays from Isaiah 53, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. As David says in verse 1, Cry out to the Lord, saying, O Lord my God, in thee do I put my trust. And friend, know that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved.
the psalm begins with a song of injustice and then moves to a song for justice. And it ends with a song of praise. In verse 17, David brings faith to its appropriate conclusion, praising God. He trusts that God will judge. And for David, this is satisfying for him. He can trust God in the midst of his injustice, and he can praise God because he trusts that God will bring about justice. He trusts, saying, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness. God will do what is right. And brothers and sisters, we will be satisfied with that. This calls for faith from us because we live in a time that is characterized by injustice. And too often, the justice that we do receive is imperfect and unsatisfying and slow. But as Christians, we have a great hope that God is real and that he knows the truth. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows what's happened to you, and he cares, and he will do what is right. He will not leave his people to suffer injustices and wrongs forever. Remember that scene in Revelation where those who have been persecuted and martyred for Christ go to him and cry out, How long, O Lord? And we see in the story of the book of Revelation that God will not delay his judgment forever. And while he waits, he offers great mercy because his son received the judgment that we deserve. So friend, trust that the king of the universe will do what is right. And that will be satisfying for us. And we will praise him. Let's pray together.